You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 53. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Heather Signorelli. She is a pathologist and founder of RevMD, and we are here to talk about the revenue cycle. If you want to know how you get paid, this is the episode for you. Tonight, there will be a webinar on feeling safe at work. Go to bosssurgery.com to register. It's at 6 p.m. Central Time. If you're feeling overwhelmed, stressed, frustrated, in a toxic environment and not sure you can do this anymore, please join me. Six o'clock central, go to bosssurgery.com to register. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back to the show. I have a great guest. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. She's got such great information that we don't know we need to know. So this is Heather Signorelli. She is the founder of the National Revenue Consulting She's a pathologist, and she's here to talk to us about the revenue cycle and a lot of things that we should be measuring in our practice. I cannot wait for this conversation. Welcome to the show. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Take us a little bit through your journey. I know you started off as a pathologist, but you have such an interesting story about how you, you know, your career shifted into this. So tell us a little bit more about your story. Absolutely. So um, pathologist by background and you know, kind of grew up in a household where we had, you know, parents who were in the medical field, but also were um, really big on the business side of medicine. And so I, I kind of joke that the business side of medicine has been something I've been used to my entire life. Um, you know, as a pathologist, I, you know, did the normal things, right? Went to residency, went to fellowship and in fellowship and, and actually even in residency kind of was given a lot of these consulting uh, opportunities where I can learn about efficiencies in the hospitals, learn about efficiencies in the lab, learn about the regulatory challenges, and kind of got into consulting early. And then when I finished fellowship, um, was uh, working for a private practice, um, and kind of got into administration literally within 24 hours of finishing fellowship. Um, there was a huge need to really help with both the clinical appropriateness, clinical algorithms when it came to laboratory testing, as well as operational efficiencies in the lab. And then now I work for a large company, um, you know, kind of overseeing the clinical side of, of hospital laboratories. And so my career has been very focused on the business side of medicine, very focused on, you know, really understanding all the ins and outs that it takes to run a successful uh, lab business. And so, um, because of that, you know, about a year ago, um, my husband and I uh, started a, a medical billing company and, you know, he quit his day job. He runs that, you know, operation day to day. And, you know, I'm kind of his physician go-to uh, person and really kind of help practices be able to understand the business side of what's going on as well as providing a reliable service. And so again, it's been a wild ride, you know, I've not been out about, I guess about eight, 10 years, but it's been um, it's been fun and it's, um, you know, I enjoy working, uh, doing what I do every single day. I think it's fantastic. And it's surprising how little we know about the revenue cycle. I mean, just as physicians, uh, I know, especially 
you know, decades ago, I guess we kind of decided, no, nah, I don't want to run any of this. And so, you know, as the people have evolved to employed practice, that we've lost track of the revenue cycles. So I think it's really fascinating just to kind of track what this revenue cycle is. So let's go through the elements. Where would we start? I'm going to start from the beginning because, and like you said, we are not taught this in medical school. And so I think all of these little business things in, in whether it's hospital or private practice have been something that I've been, you know, really um, focused on making sure that I not of course understand, but help teach other physicians. And so we're going to start from the beginning. So patients call, right? Patients call, let's start kind of private practice for, for the sake of this, although it's about the same for, you know, whether you're doing inpatient or outpatient um, in terms of the revenue cycle process. But say a patient calls your office, right? They're calling, they're a new patient. They say, hey, I want to go and see Dr. So-and-so. It's, you know, I need X, Y, and Z services. You know, the first thing that's going on in your front office is they're really trying to understand, is this patient have the insurance uh, you know, plans that we're credentialed with. And, and there's different options there, right? Are they credentialed? Are you not credentialed? Are they out of network? Do you do out of network uh, cases? And so, you know, really it's patient registration, getting that patient's demographics, their insurance, putting that all in your software. Um, the important part on that front office process is from the time that they register to the time that that patient is seen in the office, you really need to understand, is the insurance what the office takes? Is it, is it verified, right? Is it truly, you know, we're able to say that it's live and active policy. And then what's their copay? What's their deductible? What's their coinsurance? All of that information is really critical that the front office gets so that when the patient comes in, that you're able to collect that money up front. Um, anything that's due um, for copay, deductible, and coinsurance, it's really critical that the that the office is collecting that up front. It just helps keep your AR, your patient AR accounts receivable, which we'll talk about in a minute. It helps keep that amount down. So then, of course, the patient is seen. Um, the physician sees the patient. The physician drops um, your CPT codes, your ICD-10 codes, and then that's where the true revenue cycle management kind of starts. Right. And so that's when you typically have a biller or a coder, um, depending on you know your team. And they're looking at the claim going, scrubbing it. They're scrub scrubbing the claim, saying, is it the right CPTs? Do we have the right ICD 10s? Are we missing a modifier? Like, what is the information that we're submitting to the clearinghouse? Then all of that information is submitted to the clearinghouse. And that kind of goes. That, that's a first pass opportunity where the clearinghouse says, well, do I see everything that I, I need? Do I know the patient demographics right? Is the policy number right? Like, do I see any big red flags? And depending on your software, you can have some pretty good, uh, you know, kind of review going on through the clearinghouse. Things can get rejected. Um, so they haven't even made it to the payer yet. And that's what's called an unclean claim where there's something that needs to get resolved before you resubmit it. Or if it passes through the clearinghouse the first time, that's what's called a clean claim. And then um, once it uh, hits the payer, then the payer is making a decision. You know, are, are we rejecting it? Are we denying it? Are we, um, are we you know, paying it? And then the, the payer is really then looking at and going, okay, if I'm going to pay you, what's your fee schedule? And then it pays you based on that fee schedule. And that's the allowed amount, right? The, the money that you get. And then typically the billers then having to adjust off using a contractual adjustment off of the money. So say you bill $200 for something, but the fee schedule is $50, then you have to adjust off that 150 as a contractual adjustment. And that's important for the office to understand, for physicians to understand 
because you want to make sure that your billers aren't adjusting off things that aren't part of that without your knowledge or at least understanding why they're writing things off. Um, and then money comes into your account and then you can then decide, okay, what's the pay, what's owed by the patient. You send out those patient statements and then the patient payments come in and then, you know, you can kind of move on from that claim. So, I mean, high level start to finish, that's kind of what the process looks like. Um, and I will say, you know, the tidbits around this are make as much as you can automated, try and decrease as much as you can. That's manual processes. That's where we see issues really come into play and really picking the right technology between your EMR and your practice management software where the billing happens to make sure that those talk if possible and that you have everything kind of organized and in one place. I think that's great. And because I think a lot of people, like if, if we slow down the process and the people that are along the way, um, even before they hit the door, there's two relationships to keep in mind. You know, the, the patient decides their, with their contract with the insurance company is. So that's one relationship. And then we have a separate relationship with the insurance company. And what those basically say for the patient is, you know, they're going to give the insurance company some money and the insurance company says, we'll cover this for you. And this is how much you pay. And this is how much we'll pay. And then for the physician and the insurance, the physician says, I will provide this based on the di the CPT codes that will allow with these diagnoses that they will allow. And then the insurance company says, that's great. We'll give you this amount. And so therefore we'll let your, our patients see you. And a lot of people don't realize that there's those two relationships, even before they hit the door. And I don't, I mean, I certainly didn't have an appreciation for how much the front staff, uh, yeah. front desk staff did. And the biggest problem is the human element there too, which I'm sure you know about, is that you have to have someone who knows all these complex things and, you know, who checks it and checks it against patients whose insurance change and they don't know, they don't even know their benefits. Um, and it can be so confusing, especially with the uh, co-pays and things like that. It's like, no one actually knows how much a visit cost. Like no one knows what it is because no one sees that. And it's funny, there, there are two things that we try and do when we're onboarding a practice about that front office process. Cause you're right. It, it, it does depend on those people in the front office um, and it also depends on your patients being educated. So there are ways you can do both. You can incentivize your front office to collect, you know, 90% of what patients owe up front so that you're teaching them about all these different things. You're teaching them about copays, deductibles, and coinsurance. They're understanding, okay, what's my role in this and how, why it's so important. And even, you know, bonuses or something that can be given to them to say, hey, if you hit this metric, you know, of collecting upfront patient payments, you know, we'll incentivize you or bonus or whatever, like that's a really good tactic. The other is a patient payment policy. And this allows you an opportunity when you, these new patients come into the office, you say, hey, let me educate you just as you described on the contract you have with your insurance company. Let me, let me help you understand what you may be responsible for. And here's these terms, and here's what you're gonna see both for an upfront payment, as well as you know in the statements that we send you. And truly being able to help them educate helps your process in the, in the office. You know, I always say there are three reasons why people don't pay, right? They don't understand what they're paying. We don't make it easy for them to pay, right? We have to, you know, phone a friend in order to, you know, submit a payment. We have to write checks, like nobody writes checks anymore. And then um, the third is that they obviously, they, they don't have the, the ability to pay, right? And so financial payment plans and all of that. And so if you can combat those three things in your office, your ability to manage 
you know, your revenue is going to be so much better. And, um, you know, there are obviously tactics that you can do with credit cards on file and all kinds of things, depending on your credit card processor, but really making sure you have that front end process down is so important. I completely agree. And the next piece is when we see the patient, you know, I always kind of like relate this to like a plumber, a plumber diagnoses a problem in your house. And, you know, the visit is how much that visit cost. And then we come up with whatever diagnosis that is based on the ICD-10. And that is the diagnosis we have that has to match what we're going to do, which is the CPT code. Um, and those are the, the two keys that have to match, because just like you said, the more automated it is, we have to make it easy for the automation. And a lot of people, we have a lot of, you know, drama and resistance to the EMR and the, the coding. But I mean, it's simply a math problem. The ICD-10 leads to the right CPT code and you put it in the system and then money comes out. Yes. <laughs> Yes. And you have to make sure that all those pieces work. And some EMRs are better at kind of laying that out for you than others. And I will say, if anybody's listening to this and you don't have an EMR that has the updated codes, please make sure that you're talking with your EMR and getting those uploaded. Oftentimes it's additional charge to get those like 2023 ICD-10 codes, but you need to do it because like you said, matching those up, if it's not done correctly and you know, this changes every year, then you may not get paid and then you get a denial. And as those denials stack up, then it gets harder and harder for your billing company to manage that. And so it's really important that you keep as much, you correct as much upfront so that you have a better overall process and a better ability to manage, you know, denial volumes and better revenue kind of uh, flow throughout your practice. Exactly. And the more detached you are from this and the more denials stack up, you know, a lot of times these, uh, some of our companies are, or hospitals or whatever are built on like just getting a certain percentage of collection. And so if you make it hard for them, then they're going to write that off because now it becomes too hard for them to get, and they've met the metric that they care about. And, you know, the more detached we are, we don't necessarily see that. Yeah. I mean, and our hope with our clients is that we're educating them. You know, I had a coder this morning who emailed one of our physicians to say, hey, you can't put these together. And so there's got to be that communication. You know, for any of you who's listening, if you're like, I've never heard from my biller, I've never talked to them before. I've never had any feedback whatsoever on my coding. That is something where, you know, identifying those people who can sit down with you and go, okay, here's the denials we've seen over the last three months six months, whatever, here are the things that we can re-educate on. Cause that's really important that you have that relationship so that, like you said, you can continue to improve the process. You can be connected. I, you know, physicians don't need to be in the weeds all the time, but there are certain things that you really need to be kind of aware of and partnering with, with your team to make, whether you're employed or in private practice, make the revenue of the department continue to, to do well. Right. And I know some people may not know the difference between like the coding and the billing. So take us through the difference between those two. So coding is actually, you know, looking at the accuracy of the CPTs and, um, and the ICD-10 codes. So that's, that's the coding. So there are certified coders that look at those. They can look at the charts. They can look at your surgery notes. They can understand, okay, what code should I be dropping? What CPTs, what ICD-10s? So that's the coding piece. The billing is actually going through the actual billing process, right? So it's dropping the claim, it's managing the denial, it's, you know, looking for the payment, posting the payment to the account, sending out the patient statement. So billers kind of manage the overall process. Coders 
you know, obviously th that can be the same person, but the actual coding is actually looking at the accuracy of the CPTs, the modifiers, and the ICD-10 codes. I always kind of like going back to the plumber again is like the coders create the invoice and mm -hmm. the billers get you the money. Mm -hmm. Correct. Correct. That's a good analogy. There's a, a CBT code companion for general surgery, and there's like specific wording. And, you know, I didn't realize that it, since you may not even have someone who knows the medical field, coding your stuff is like the more we can make it in the words they recognize, then it makes it so much easier for the coders. And so if we modify our templates for that, we're already making their job easier, which means Correct. they're going to spend time on the things that are hard. Correct. And everything's in those coding books. Everything is in there. Um, the rules are in there in terms of what you're allowed to put together or not put together or, or not bill for within a certain time period or what diagnostic codes you're allowed to put together or not put together, how specific you need to be with ICD-10 codes. That's another tip I'll give the listeners. So, you know, if you're, if you're working with patients and there's, you know, 10 ICD-10 codes specific for a diagnostic area, don't pick the unspecified. If you have, if you can get more specific, the left foot, the right foot, you know, whatever, the the better uh, you're going to be at getting those uh, claims accepted. So stay away from unspecified codes unless that's all you can give. Perfect. Now take us to the, the billing department. So what does that look like and what does a billing company do? So um, really we, you know, manage the entire process. So we have a number of different types of individuals on our team. So we obviously have billers and coders. We have individuals who kind of manage just the denials. That's kind of the accounts receivable. So accounts receivable for listeners who don't know that is really that bucket of money that you're owed, right? And that can be because you've just submitted the claims and you're kind of waiting on adjudication or they were denied and now we have to, you know, kind of resubmit and fix those claims in order to get paid. So accounts receivables, um, you know, you know, especially for a multi- physician practice can be quite large and you have to stay on top of that. So in a billing company, you have, you know, billing, you know, you're obviously kind of managing the claims, scrubbing them, submitting them, managing that AR. And that takes a number of talented individuals to kind of keep that process all buttoned up. And then on top of that is really the data part, right? So making sure that you have big picture metrics that you're looking at to see how am I doing? And that is probably the number one thing I see practices not really have a handle on is their metrics. And then when you when you get into that situation six, 12 months later, you're looking at your bank account going, shoot, this doesn't look like it used to. What's going on? But if you keep on top of certain metrics, you can really make sure that the billing process is going smoothly. Perfect. And I think that leads us to these five measures that that you know that private practices should look at every month. So take us through those five uh, measurements. Yes, happy to. And again, for the listeners out there, I know that this is technical. This, you know, you don't necessarily need to be the expert on understanding what all these metrics are. The question, the the thing people should take away for from is if I'm not getting metrics from my billing team today, if I'm in private practice, if I'm not getting these, then I need to go sit down and schedule some time with my biller and really understand, okay, what are the metrics you're measuring? Help me understand what those are. And then they can teach you again we are not supposed to be the experts. We're just supposed to be the people who lead and manage the team to give us what we need in order to make good decisions. So I'll give you the five metrics. So the first is that clean claim rate. So clean claim, remember how I said claims pass through the clearinghouse and if they pass through the first time, you kind of get that check mark. 
if it passes through the first time, that's called a clean claim. You want that high because then that, you know, as long as no errors are identified, that helps kind of keep the money flowing. So the first is clean claim. The second is denial rate. So denial rate is that amount of claims that are denied. And you want to keep this low, right? And this has to do with a number of different factors. It could be coding, it could be ICD-10 codes, it could be CPTs, it could be demographics or patient insurance. There's a lot that goes into why a claim's denied. But again, you want to keep that low, less than 10% if possible. The third is has to do with accounts receivable. So again, accounts receivable is that bucket of money. It's sitting there, you're kind of waiting to get paid. Um, you want to know that bucket of money, that accounts receivable by different aging buckets, right? So you want to know how much, it, you know, is zero to 30 days old, how much is over 90 days old, how much is over a year old, because um, the more you know about the age of those of that money, the more you know how efficient your billing is, because the older the accounts receivable is, the less likely you're going to get paid on it. And so it's really important that you understand, okay, what's in my accounts receivable and how old is it? Because that can tell you, you know, um, do I have a billing problem? And so if, if you were to focus on one, two things, it's how much of my AR is over 90 days, right? Because 90 days is uh, uh, for a lot of payers, what timely filing is. And so if you have AR that's over 90 days, maybe harder to collect. Now, granted, Medicare has 365 day timely filing limit. So if you see a lot of Medicare, you've got 365 days. Now, that doesn't mean you want to wait 365 days. It just means if you've got an issue, you've at least got a little wiggle room for time to be able to address that. Then the other is um, the average days in AR. So that's the you know, on average, how long does it take you to get paid for a claim? And that, you know, Medicare, that's that's 14 days. And your your private payers, that's much longer. So on average, you know, you're seeing about 40 days in average uh, AR, uh, average days in AR, I should say. So that's the fourth. Now, the fifth is something that's called the net collection ratio. And so remember how I talked about when you when you drop a charge, right? You know, it's kind of fictitious money, right? Like you're like, I I I charge two hundred dollars for this, three hundred dollars for that, right? You you set your fee schedule. That's what that charge is based off of. Then the fee schedule that you've set with your payer, that the payer has set for you, I should probably more appropriately say, um, they you know say, well, I'm only going to pay you a hundred dollars. Well, that contractual adjustment, so you adjust off you know, the additional $100. And then that net collection ratio is really the amount of money you collect based on what you are allowed. And so you want that high, like 90, 95%, because that's the money you're owed. That's the, the insurance company saying, no, I will pay you that $100. So then your job or your biller's job is to go get that $100. Now, nothing's perfect, right? So, you know, nothing's going to be 100%, but 90, 95%. Um, you should be uh, geared towards. Now, that is a hard number to measure because not everybody has their fee schedule. Not everybody has, um, you know, that very well organized. So it is something that is not always super transparent, but you can get to it. You can look at that number over a large period of time, six months or so, and be able to get an understanding of how efficient your billers are. And that's all based on that contractual adjustments and making sure you understand when you're adjusting something off, is this a contractual adjustment or adjustment for another reason? Yes, and so, let me, yeah, I know a lot of people don't uh, necessarily know what a fee schedule is. And this is part of the contractual uh, agreement that you have with the insurance company, right? The fee schedule is like, here's the CPT codes. 
these the ICD tens that we're going to pay for this CPT code, and this is the match you're going to get. Did Correct. I get that right? You got that right. And I would say, um, and we just did two podcasts on uh, pair contracts. Um, so, you know, it is really important that you get organized, you have those lists. And again, this doesn't need to be the physician. It just needs to be somebody in the office, um, be able to have those. And so um, that is really important. And yes, fee schedule is set by the insurance company. And that's a set amount of dollars for specific CPT codes. And this goes into um, another thing that we should be keeping in mind, that these fee schedules are different for the different payers, and they're going to be different amounts. And so really, you have to know what your payer mix is to know what you should be expecting to get doing the same work. Yeah. And there are ways you can kind of look at your data and go, okay, what's my receipts per claim for Blue Cross Blue Shields versus my receipts per claim versus t- for Aetna so that you can get some understanding, okay, who is paying me? better overall. Now you can get in the, in the weeds and look at that per CPT, but, um, but having a high level view of, okay, what am I getting, you know, paid per, uh, per claim for different payers. So then it allows you to make some business decisions on, do you keep all of these payers? You know, do you have 50% of your, of your patients in this payer? Okay. That makes sense. Or do you have 5% and then you have such low fee schedules? Is that even really worth it for you to be you know, accepting patients in that plan. And that's something you can think about as well as you, you know, understand what's going on in your business. And, and, and there are important business decisions you can make based on that data. Right. Because, you know, if I do a hundred gallbladders in a year, if I get a, a, a pair of mix that, that pays very low, I'm going to actually pay less for the same amount of work than if I had a pair of mix that has a high reimbursement rate for the same work. Um, and that's exactly exactly where a lot of us don't realize, you know, when you're going to an area and you're looking for a job is understanding that payer mix and how much they pay is going to be, sh- it's going to show up in your salary. Correct. hundred percent. Now, um, I know that we mentioned a few times that that a lot of things change. What are the things that change and how do we know that they're changing? Where do we find this information? So CMS is a good place to find information when it changes. Um, the, you know, there are ICD-10 changes that come through. There are um, coding changes, CPT changes that come. AMA has a lot of stuff on education that comes out um, that can be helpful for educational tools. Um, your billing team really needs to be on top of those changes. Um, if there are really pertinent things that are going on, you know, setting down and trying to understand, um, you know, what those are and how does that impact your practice? And that's different for different subspecialties. Um, There are also coding professional societies um, that do education and have books. And while, again, it's not imperative that a physician knows every single one of those things, they need to know in general um, when those changes happen and how they need to impact their practice. The other I will say is your EMR is actually your practice management software, wherever you're dropping these ICD-10 codes or CPT codes can also be a wealth of knowledge. And oftentimes, you know, you're wanting to upload those um, additions and changes into those programs so that you can uh, make sure that you're using the most up-to-date codes. So partnering with your biller, partnering with your EMR, your PM software vendor to make sure that you have everything uploaded that's up to date in there so that you're not using outdated codes is really important. Right. Now, I know for the private practice, we have this five metrics, but you know, what should an employed physician be doing? Yes. Oh, I love this. So I'm a big believer in always being a partner with your employer. So if you're employed, 
Um, you know, it's going and sitting down with, you know, whether it's your manager or somebody in the finance department to say, hey, help me understand what our revenue looks like. Help me understand where we have opportunity and sit down with them and say, okay, I want to see the accounts receivable. I want to see our efficiencies. I want to see our denials. I want to understand why we're getting denials. And then being able to work as a group with the physicians who are in that department to say, okay, here's where we need education. Here's where we can improve the process. Here's where we can improve our notes, you know, because all of that impacts um, the coding and the billing process. And so if you can sit down and identify the right individuals to say, hey, help me understand how I can be a good partner for the department. And I know that's not always an easy conversation to have, and you kind of have to wiggle around who to identify to be able to sit down and do that. But when you approach it as, I want to be a partner for the department, I want to identify opportunities and I want to help make, you know, the billing process more efficient, you're going to get better access to data than if you just say, well, I, I just want to raise and, you know, help me, help me get a raise and I deserve more. And so I think if you approach it in that former way, and you really do sit down and work with the department and help be that that advocate for the billing process, then what ends up happening, A, you understand more, you, you do help the revenue grow for the department. And oftentimes that may even lend it in a raise or something that helps you, know, you personally as well. And so again, you know, being a, a good partner, sitting down with your hospital team, whether that's a, a manager, you kind of want to, you know, kind of feel out the politics because, you know, that's everywhere. So you kind of want to fill out the politics, make sure you're not stepping on toes, but then really just approaches as help me learn, help me understand, help me help you. So that's always my recommendation, even for an employed doc. And I can imagine how that must feel on the, the coder and the biller side um, and the administration too. It's like, I've got a physician who actually cares about what I'm doing and maybe I'll actually try harder or show them how, and, and we can actually both really gain a lot from that relationship. Yeah. And, you know, there's pros and cons to, to working in different, you know, employed and private practice. And, you know, all of them are here to stay, right? I mean, we're, we're going to have different work environments. And if you've chosen to look work in one versus another, and, you know, I, I think the more you can show that, hey, I want to be a good partner, I think it just helps um, your employer want to also help you. And so, again, I, I feel like it's always just about partnership. I love it. And so the I know that a lot of employed physicians don't necessarily know this, or these people that are new in practice are realizing this, but we actually have to come up with these codes without like much training, because I know the EMR makes us pick something. And I remember going to my first employed job out of the military, they sat down and like, well, here's all the ways you coded wrong. I'm like, well, how would I know? <laughs> that is so true. I mean, it, and we're not taught this in medical school. It's, um, we, you know, I, we've actually started contemplating, do we start doing some resident education? you know, for different subspecialties and how would we do that? And um, it, it's, uh, you know, it's important. And I know a lot of it's just like, you just learn on the fly. Um, but I'm hoping that, you know, wherever you go into practice, you're able to spend some time getting some education. And there are courses out there from the professional societies and um, AAPC, which is one of the coding professional societies to, to help new and practice docs. Um, so there are some resources out there, but you do have to take the time to kind of sit down. And especially if you're, a, you know, in the surgery realm, it is a lot more complicated wherever you can building templates to say, okay, here's kind of the things I do frequently. I need to make sure I understand, you know, what goes where that will help with efficiency in terms of coding and billing. And then you kind of learn it over time. Um, but it is important to get it's some sort of crash course, some sort of education, because 
it is, it, it can be tricky. <laughs> it's definitely tricky. Um, you know, I think before we started recording, I told you I took the uh, Karen Zipko course for the American College of Surgeons. And I remember the first hour going, what are they talking about? What's the modifier? What is the, I don't, what's a co-surgeon? I don't understand any of this. And so I took it again a second time and I still felt that, you know, it was a little over my head. I've spent a lot of time with our billers and our coders um, trying to learn some of this stuff. And it really is, really is hard because for example, if you go in and you do a case, if you're the same specialty, you have to document who does what, otherwise you can't code it. And then you each get like 75% of the case and it still has to be coded right. If you get called into a different specialty, you may be able to code your part, but maybe you're better off coding it as the E&M visit. It's really challenging. Mm -hmm. Surgery is very challenging. And that, <laughs> I cannot deco that enough. I mean, we definitely have coders that help with our uh, surgical practices. It's helpful for us to be aware of that because if you do code it incorrectly, you know, you run the risk of not getting paid. Um, and then you also, you know, in being in the mindset part, you know, honestly, the stress for me and, and the outpatient setting is undercoding because you don't want to be accused of fraud either. And, you know, or having to get these penalties and having to pay money back too. So it feels, you know, maybe more high stakes than it is, but it certainly has, does not feel neutral at all. <laughs> no. Well, and the hard part, right, is if you're so removed, if you're just kind of dropping stuff, but you don't get the feedback, then you're like, I think I'm doing it right. I don't really know. And so that's why, you know, if you can have a coding audit once a year, or once every other year, or when you have big changes in your practices, it, that's not a bad way to go about this. And you can do that for, you know, for the grand, the grand scheme of things, not that expensive, you know, but it's worth doing, especially kind of as a gut check every once in a while. And there are certified coders who can do that for you that can, you know, really kind of look at, are you under coding? What's going on? If your billers are bringing your denials to you, then you know some information, but, you know, those are kind of two approaches, you know, one kind of making sure you're getting feedback on your denials. And then two, um, you know, having a coding audit every once in a while to say, how are, how am I doing? You know, do I need to make improvements or changes? And um, those can be good ways to approach things. Yes, because it could be something as dumb as there are two things, examples that come to mind. One was, you know, we were taking out lipomas and they're like, well, we don't know that you went through the skin because there's a code that says subcutaneous lipoma. I was like, that's not a thing. So like, well, if you just document that you made a full thickness incision, then we'll know you went through the skin. And I'm like, that's dumb. But then I resisted the idea that it's dumb. And I just said, I made a incision full thickness to the skin because that's what they wanted me to say. Right, and right. Right, colon difference, you know, it, there's a code difference. Like if you look at the CPT, CPT code book, if you take the ileocecal valve, it's a different code. And so we're like, of course we take the ileocecal valve if you take a right colon, it's connected to it. But anyway, yeah. there's a code difference. You know, if we just drop the drama and write, I took out the ileocecal valve, then, you know, it's just recognizing that railing against the system and getting angry is not going to help. You know, mm -hmm. just find the words, put the words on there and get paid. Correct. Right. And just, and, you know, and there are, like you said, it's very specific. And so, and if it's in the coding book and you do it and your coders know about it and your billers know about it, it'll just make everything. And then it just makes it work better. So it, again, like you said, just don't fight it. It is what it is. And, um, you know, it just, just help your coders and your billers out as much as you can learn as much as you can. And um, I, I promise it will end up increasing your revenue over time. Yes. And I love the idea of, of everyone as, as partners and us being partners with them. Now, let's take me through your company and what do you offer and, and why did you choose this? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, about a year ago, uh, well, I guess it's been two years now. Um, you know, we were, my husband and I were at a conference. He was uh, going along. He's not medical. And we had sat down and chatted with a physician who had not been paid in over a year. And when he, he was in private practice and, and when it came down to it, it was a poor billing process. Now, granted, he had figured it out well before the year, but by the time he kind of got everything in order and got to a new biller and got the AR set up, it was a really long time and very stressful. And it was during COVID of all things. And so, um, you know, my husband's background in, um, in software and, you know, of course, mine in the business side of medicine, as well as, you know, clinical medicine, we knew that we could, you know, offer a more reliable service. And so we offer offer full service revenue management cycle services. Um, we do coding audits. Um, we have an awesome team based here in the United States. Um, and, you know, it's just our mission is just really to help practices thrive. And um, we like to kind of think of ourselves as something more than just reliable coding and billing, but really a strategic partner to help practices kind of think through, okay, from start to finish, what does my workflow look like? And where do I have risk points that I need to kind of make a change. And so that's really, you know, our focus. And, um, and we just hope that we're able to help practices have these metrics that they can see every month. We are a big proponent of, and we actually push um, standardized metrics to our practices every single month so that they're not having to like look in the software and going, huh, what button do I push? How do I find that data? Like we just put it in Excel and we say, here's the five tabs you look at and you can go as detailed as you want or just stay high level on the first tab. And we kind of summarize it for them so that they understand what's going on. And that allows them to make good decisions. That allows the company to be able to set KPIs for the practices. So for those of you who don't know, KPI stands for key performance indicators. And those are you know, things that you know help you improve a process, help you improve something that's going on in the front office, help you improve you know, coding education. Those can all be KPIs that you set up based on those metrics. Perfect. And who is the ideal practice that should seek you out? So we have a number of different subspecialties that we work with today, um, primarily kind of in two worlds. So private practices, and then we do have uh, some laboratories. And so um, again, um, you know, we're really uh, focused on hiring the right people for the right subspecialties. So we have five or six different subspecialties today, and we have individuals who kind of are knowledgeable about those. And again, um, you know, if I think the number one thing is understanding your metrics, understanding, you know, what level of service you need from your biller and coder in order for that met those metrics to be, you know, where they need to be for you to be getting the revenue you deserve. Now, I know that, that people can find you in a number of different places. You've been very generous with a lot of your information that you have. Um, I know you've got a Facebook group and a podcast and a website. So tell us where to find you. Yeah. So we have a podcast that's on Apple Podcasts, totally free. It's called RevMD, R-E-V-M-D. Um, and the Facebook group is also called RevMD. And then the last is our website at nationalrevenueconsulting.com. And we do a metric course um, about once a quarter now that kind of goes into detail on those metrics that I talked about, about benchmarks and how to calculate it and all those things. So um, we kind of have, and that you can find that link on our website and you can sign up and we're happy to um, you know, kind of add you to the wait list. And then when we do the course once a quarter, um, we'll send out an invite and people can come or, or just ask for the replay if they're not able to make it that day. So 
That's great. I mean, what's such generous uh, information that you've given us? Uh, and I really appreciate Dr. Signorelli, all that you have offered us too, because I mean, so many people just don't even know how simple the money cycle can be. And through your podcast and through your Facebook group and these courses, you offer so much more detail um, to the level that we would want to know. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this with us and sharing us where to find you because, you know, clearly this is not the end because it gets more complicated every year, it seems. Yes, it does. But the good thing is, is when you have good team members, you have a good process, everybody can can succeed. So um, I appreciate you having me on and thank you so much. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.